Hello, welcome to Farmgate, I'm Finlow Castain. White Oak Pastures is a 152-year-old family farm in Bluffton, Georgia, USA. Like most other farms, White Oak Pastures took the chemical, industrializing route after the Second World War. For example, using nitrogen fertilizers that made the grass grow, but which degraded the microbial life that underpins natural soil fertility. In 1995, the fourth generation took over. Will Harris began the transition away from industrial agricultural techniques and started redesigning his farm as a living ecosystem. The success at White Oak Pastures has been celebrated globally, and Will Harris is my guest on Farmgate today. Hello, Will. Welcome to the programme. Hello, Finn Lowe. Uh, thank you for having me on today. Hope you're doing well. Could I start by, you know, just, it's a simple question. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but could you describe your farm now? What, what does White Oak Pastures look like today, and how is it different from the way that it looked in 1995? Well, it, it's quite different. Uh, today, the farm is uh, polyculture. We pasture-raise five different uh, red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we're hand Butcher them here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, skinnies, ducks. We hand butcher them here on the farm. We raise pastured eggs, pastured vegetables, honey, or, I mean, organic vegetables, honey. <clears throat> the, uh, the farm is uh, 3,200 acres here, plus another 1,425 acres that's a solar array that we graze. Uh, we have 176 employees. So that's today. Uh, 25 years ago, it was about a thousand acres of land, monoculture of only cattle, uh, probably four employees. So it's, it's from a economic perspective, ec- economic impact perspective, from a species. It's just in, in every sense of the word, it's a very different operation. You know, one of the things that strikes me there is that it's not just about rearing the cattle. Now you've got the whole thing on the on the site that you're on, the rearing through to slaughter to processing to retail, and you know the shops and and all the paraphernalia that go around with that. I mean, it's now it's a huge business where before it was a farm. Well, it's still a farm, but closing cycles is very important to us. You know, the way I farmed previously, very linear, very scalable. Uh, this is very cyclic. And when you were growing up, clearly you worked within the conventional system, you know, learning your trade from your father. And I think it was around 1995 that you decided to take, you know, what was at that time uh, a perfectly profit-making conventional cattle farm business and and put it 7.5 million dollars into debt. Now, what convinced you that it was reasonable to take that kind of risk? I did learn how to, to raise cattle from my father, who was a very linear industrial commodity cattleman and very good at it. And as you said, was, was very successful. Uh, I went to University of Georgia. I majored in animal science. I came home in 1976 and further industrialized what was already a very industrial uh, cattle operation. I ran it that way for 20 years. After 20 years of operating in that manner, uh, I started enjoying it less because I had become increasingly aware of the unintended consequences of that farming system. The impact on the land and the animals and the community you know, were uh, unintended consequences. They were unwanted consequences, and it caused me to want to move away from that production model. In what way did you become aware of it? It started out with me as an animal welfare issue. That was kind of the canary in the coal mine uh, 
uh, you know, uh, raising calves, loading them up on a truck, 100 calves on a truck, the ones two-story, two, two-level truck, the ones upper urinating and defecating and the ones on the bottom, driven 30 hours to a very different uh, ecosystem or something I just didn't like. I've done it for 20 years. It hadn't bothered me, but I started to just not like it. And so I started moving away from that model. Uh, I then gave up chemical fertilizers, pesticides, uh, you know, became my, on my land. And then later, and, and in, the, in the case of the land and the animals, we studied the system and made very conscious decisions about how to change the way we were managing. In the case of the community, it was, it was really a, a pleasant, unintended consequence. The community benefited. Uh, I should tell you that uh, I mentioned we got 176 employees. Uh, we we have a payroll of $100,000 a week, $100,000 per week in one of the poorest counties and one of the poorest states in the union. So the, the economic impact has been significant. There are lots of other cattlemen around you, you know, across Georgia, across the USA, who have started feeling frustrated with the conventional system, have started noticing the animal welfare issues, perhaps have started even seeing the degradation in the soil for themselves. But but actually taking that decision, one day waking up, having thought about it for however many months, and say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to put this farm into debt. I'm going to I'm going to put my family at risk. I'm going to put my my legacy at risk here. That's a really big decision. And I'm just wondering what it is about you, Will, that's different from the other farmers around you. Well, first of all, let me let me put everything you said is true, but it was much more gradual than the way you described it. I, uh, in 1995, I didn't formulate uh, a grand plan to do to be what we are today. It was not that way. Uh, I just started moving away from practices I did not like and embracing practices that I do like. So that, just to be clear on that. To answer the question about the motivation, uh, I, I think that probably I became aware of the unintended consequences more than my neighbors because I probably was more of an abuser of the uh, tools. I probably used more herbicide, more insecticide, more chemical fertilizer, probably more hormone implants in the cattle, more uh, subtherapeutic antibiotics and onosaurs. You know, if you if you drink a uh, uh, one glass of uh, bourbon every night, you'll probably be fine. If you drink a quart of bourbon every night, you'll see the negative parts of, of, uh, of alcohol. And I was probably an abuser of those industrial tools. I don't think I'm more sensitive than my neighbors. I think I probably was more of an abuser than my neighbors. Obviously, as you go forward through that process, you know, after 1995, um, you know, changing gradually the practices that you're involved in, you'll have noticed, uh, I imagine pretty quickly, that there was a reduction in costs as you were reducing the inputs um, that you were putting on the land there. But I'm wondering, um, you know, to what extent that helped to provide the capital for the investments that were to come, whether you had to raise additional capital and really what the first big investment on the farm was after you'd started moving down that more agroecological road. Well, no, no, you've got one thing wrong there. Uh, changing to this way of farming is not a cost savings. It's true you spend less on inputs, but your output falls way below what it had been previously. You know, science did not give us those tools to add cost to production. They gave us those tools to take cost out of production. 
So uh, in fact, I made less money uh, after I started doing without the inputs than I did previously because while I was spending less, my production was far less. So not only did it not help fund the additional uh, improvements that we made here, it was it was a dra- drag was, uh, on what I'd done previously. We were making less money. And, and in fact, take that a step further, a farmer cannot uh, give up these tools, these production tools, and continue to market into the commodity market. You will go broke. It will not work because you're adding value to the product that the commodity market will not let you extract back. So if you decide to change your production model to one that's kinder and gentler for the land and animals and community, you've also got to market your products differently. That involves building a brand, finding a customer base that's, that's accepting of it and willing to pay something of a premium to cover the added cost of production. It also involves being able to move the product into a monetizable uh, product. Consumers don't buy cows and hogs and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. So being able to monetize it is is essential. So when you talk about the way that you were putting cost into the business, I take it that that was because as those as those inputs reduced, as your productivity reduced, you were still trying to sell into the commodity market. And so what you found was that you needed, um, you were changing one side of the seesaw, but not the other. And so you had to um, not only reduce the inputs and change the quality of that product, but also take on that retailing and processing in order to make business sense of everything. That's well said. That's exactly right. And, and so what was the first thing that you did? You talked about building a brand there. Was, was that the first thing that came along or did you say, well, you know, actually in order to be able to do this and to take control of this, um, we need to build our own slaughterhouse, our own processing facility. What, what sort of came first in terms of the big investments? Yeah, good question. <clears throat> so the, the, the first thing I did, and this is what most farmers do, and it's a mistake, is I changed the production model without changing any Anything else. I gave up chemical fertilizers, pesticides, hormone implants, subtherapeutic antibiotics, confinement feeding of grain to ruminants, dot, dot, dot. I gave that up, but continued to market my product into the commodity market. And I had less product to sell because I had given up those production tools. So it was, it was not working economically for me. Uh, so we uh, started marketing our beef as grass-fed beef. At that time, it was a monoculture of only cattle. The timing was very fortunate. Uh, the, the market for grass-fed beef was just starting to develop. And I was using outside slaughter capacity to turn my cows into beef to sell. That worked well for a while but I exhausted the excess capacity of the slaughterhouses I was using. They, they only had so much extra slaughter capacity and, 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 and they ran out before I got profitable. They say, you can bring six cows next week. I said, I need to bring 12. I got 12 that are ready and I've got the market to sell the beef from 12. I'm sorry, you can't bring the six. And at that level, I couldn't make money. So at that, in fact, I was losing money. So I had to decide either to go back to the commodity model and commodity production, industrial production, or invest in the processing capacity, the slaughter capacity, which is ultimately the seven and a half million dollars that you referenced. Uh, I, I mentioned also earlier that, that we are very focused on closing cycles. 
and, and being able to slaughter the cat animals here allowed us to uh, utilize the uh, waste from the animals as fertilizer. We take uh, um, our plants, generate about nine tons of what they refer to as packing plant waste per day, five days a week. Uh, we don't pay to have that hauled to a landfill. We uh, compost it here on the farm and apply that compost back to our own land. So it's, it's a, another closed cycle. Fantastic. So it's it's circular farming um, at its best, where you, you're opening that loop and you're closing it at the same time, keeping the waste products, using those waste products on farm. I, when I first came across you, Will, on uh, the fantastic Carbon Cowboys films that have been produced by Peter Bick. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really exciting to watch. And in uh, that film, you talked about the way in which when you first started that move away from conventional farming towards regenerative agriculture and uh, adaptive multi grazing you talked about the dark days of the first year or two and i'm just wondering if that was connected to that you know having changed the uh, the production element still trying to sell into the commodity trying to wrestle with that challenge and, and and i wonder if you could tell me what was the most difficult thing within those dark days and, and what it was that pulled you through it rather than um sending you back in the other direction and just thinking okay well hang it all i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> let's give up with this and go back to to the way that we used to do things well sadly and this is not to my credit but probably naivety had a lot to do with the the decisions we made early on you know i had inherited a, a nice farm from my father grandfather great-grandfather as you mentioned earlier and uh, i'd never borrowed money and we'd always been profitable and I simply didn't know that I could get in the economic distress. I'd never been in uh, financial trouble. I didn't know I could get in financial trouble. So I uh, made the decision based on more what I want to do than economic decision that, that it probably should have been. And when it, we borrowed the money, built the plant, and we still weren't able to make money initially, which is not unusual. Getting a new business going is all, all, already, always difficult with cash flow. But the answer is that, you know, after I borrowed the money and built the building, there was no going back. There, were, you know, there was no, uh, there would have been no market for the failed facility I built. So I simply had to make it work. And the, again, the timing was such that we were able to do that. I don't know that we could do it today. I, don't, I, I'm, I fear the economic conditions have changed uh, so much that we probably did all that in a sweet spot. If we'd been 10 years earlier, I know we would not have, have survived. If we'd been 10 years later, I'm not sure we would have. The southern states of the United States of America, they're, they're kind of synonymous with, uh, with family, family values. And I, I was at university in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, my, one, of, one of my memories from there is how important family was to, uh, to everybody. I just wonder how important your family was at that time. How, uh, you know, because you, you would have felt that you were potentially dragging your family into a dark place just as you were yourself how important were they in holding you up and getting you through and making that business work well certainly family could not be more important there's no way i can express that as, uh, as far as the support from my family uh, they, they never really knew the situation you know my my father was uh uh, uh had dementia uh, he died of Alzheimer's, so he was not aware of what was going on on the farm economically. 
Uh, my wife was raising my family. She's a, a professional school teacher. Has never been heavily involved in the business. And my children, uh, two of which are helping me run the business today, but they were young. They didn't, so they didn't know either. So uh, family was not an essential element in uh, the decisions we made, either to get into this or the struggles to get to improve it. Now. <clears throat> so again, two of my three children do work here full time now, as do their spouses, and all four of them are in management, and they've been very instrumental over the last 10 years or so, of, uh, of, of instrumental in making the business a success. You mentioned that your father had dementia um, at the time that you were making the transition. And I'm just wondering, you know, your father had been a successful cattleman himself. He'd been running the farm himself for presumably decades. If your father was aware of the changes that you were making and the struggles that you were going through, what do you think he'd have said to you? Well, he simply would not have let me do it. It was just as simple as that. He was very much in control until he was not in control anymore. So his word would have been the law and he would not have had it. He was very debt adverse. I, don't, I doubt if my father ever borrowed a penny in his life. A uh, child of the Depression, again, successful and just didn't, didn't believe in borrowing money. And I, but I do think a lot about what would he say today. And I think he would be very pleased with everything we've done, except for the fact that we still have um, operating on borrowed money. We, we still have bank debt. We, we make debt service every month, but he would not like that. And I, I have no idea what he would say, but uh, some of it would be real good and some of it would be real bad. And the bad part would be loud and laced with obscenities. <laughs> <laughs> and and part of the reason, I guess, that you're, uh, you know, there are still debts associated with this is that you, you seem to be constantly investing. You're constantly growing um, not just the business, but the, the positive impact of the business in the community, you know, buying up property and renovating it for your, your farm workers. You mentioned you've got 176 employees now and $100,000 um, uh, pay round. Uh, did you say a week or a month was... A week. I mean, you know, just, just, just immense. And uh, and and I wonder, you know, what the positive. What do you what do you think the key sort of positive impacts are on the community around you of you being successful and taking successful decisions in your business? Well, the 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 economic impact is very visible. The little, uh, the little town of Bluffton, Georgia, sits right in the middle of my farm, and we've we bought a lot of the uh, stores old storefronts and a lot of vacant lots and houses there. And it has gone from a ghost town, literally a ghost town, to a thriving, tiny little village. It's just tiny. It's 100 people. But it's it's just very, very nice. People, people it's a destination. People come there to be there. So that, that's, that's been very pleasing. And again, that was an unintended consequence that, was, that, that went well. I'm just going to move on now. I'd like to focus a little bit on the, the welfare or the environmental impacts, the positive impacts of your, your change. What do you think the key benefits are of the changes that you've made? So uh, of the, the, the three basic tenets of White Oak Pastures, the three things that we strive for is uh, better and better animal welfare, 
Bodo and Bodo regenerative land management practices and more and more enrichment of this rural community. Those are the three basic tenets. The first one was animal welfare, but today it's not. We still, we, we, we're doing better and better every year, but I think we've done about all we can do. You know, when we, uh, uh, we thought what we believed was good animal welfare, we realized was not good animal welfare. So we changed things. I don't think we're going to get much better at it than we are right now. We will continue to focus on it, but that's an accomplishment that's more in the rearview mirror. The next tenant that I, that, that I embraced, and it's, it's still my passion, is the regenerative land management. And that is, is truly my passion today. And I, I guess I'm, I think if I have learned some things that I want to share with others, it has to do with the, the regenerative land management. It's uh, uh, something that's it's, uh, practices that badly need implementing uh, in this country, probably all over the world. Uh, great, great damage, great de degradation has been done through the industrial farming methods. And we figured out how to reverse that. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun doing it. The, the, the changes to the community, as I mentioned earlier, were unintentional and they're very pleasant. And it should be done. There should be a white oak pastures uh, re-enriching a Bluffton, Georgia, in every agricultural county in the United States, or two or three of us. And that'll, that'll come you know, just naturally if the right things are done for the land and the, and the animals. One of the things that's a really pleasant sort of almost accidental to start with outcome associated with the regenerative grazing that you're, you're doing is carbon sequestration. And, and clearly, you know, over time, that's become uh, a, a really important uh, outcome that you've measured and monitored and that you, uh, you're making sure that you're, you're drawing down as much carbon as you can because it's, it's become so important to the world. And I'm just wondering how you've gone about analysing that, how you've gone about measuring it, whether it's something that you've been monitoring for many years and, and just, you know, what kind of data it is that you're pulling together. You know, thank you for that question. And I want to preface it by saying that we're very proud of the carbon sequestration that we have done and are continuing to do. But I, I do want to warn uh, listeners that I don't want this, this change in farming method to be all about carbon. It's important. It's very important. But there are so many other benefits that come from uh, this sort of, of production practice that we just get bogged down in carbon. So the, the, the improvement to the to the water, to the to the oceans, to the I mean the groundwater, the oceans, to the uh, community, on and on and on. Just uh, so so many benefits that let's just don't let it be all about carbon. That's number one. Number two is I really get tired of hearing scientists bicker about how to measure carbon. I mean, I, I don't know how to measure carbon. I know how to sequester carbon. And we figured it out. They're still figuring out how to measure it. And their, their schools of thought is very polarized. And they, they bicker and quibble all the time. And it, it really wearies me. I don't need it. I can see the benefit. You know, I can see what my fields look like compared to my neighbor's field 10 feet away at 50 miles an hour on the, uh, driving down the road. Uh, I can go out and take a spade full of soil and turn it over. And the difference is not quite black and white, but it's red and, and very dark gray. The land changes color. When there's a big rainstorm, which we get in the Gulf Coast of the United States quite often, the runoff from my land, there won't be much runoff. 
And if it is, it's very clear. Off my neighbors, it looks like a strawberry milkshake and it's flooding from there. So, you know, it, it, carbon, carbon is important. I'm very proud of the fact we squished carbon, very proud of the fact we got a scientific study, third party done that shows we sequester carbon. But uh, the, the argument is endless on exactly how to measure We've got a slightly more practical question here that came in from Twitter uh, from a, a farmer for you, Will. And it's, it just says, do you know a good way to build topsoil on top of the soil that you've already got? So for farms that have really shallow soils over bedrock, you know, where subsoiling isn't really possible, do, do you have any tips for how to, how to create additional new topsoil? I think the same regenerative farm management applies in both cases. I think we do build deeper and deeper soil, even as we're changing the subsoil. The changes we're talking about is uh, cease cultivation, cease use of, of chemical fertilizers, cease use of pesticides, and bring in animal impact. And the animal impact needs to be high impact, animal impact with a very long recovery period. And that will build, it will, it will change the subsoil, but it'll also make the topsoil deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, the argument is made that by my many scientists, and I disagree with it, that you can only improve soil for so long and it reaches a saturation point and there's not going to be any more carbon in that soil. And I do understand the saturation point, but I think what they fail to understand is the soil will get deeper and deeper and deeper. And we've seen that in our own country where uh, virgin soils were broken and this topsoil was very, very, very deep and it became more and more shallow as time went on. Well, the same forces of nature that built that deep topsoil can rebuild that deep topsoil if we humans will quit doing the things that, that destroyed it. What kind of a recovery time do you have uh, on your own pasture? That is highly, good question, it's highly situational. In a very brutal environment like you would find in a, a desert kind of an area, arid area with not much rainfall, not much humidity. Uh, you may not be able to graze the same land. Uh, in, in It may take more than a year. Uh, I'm in the coastal plains of Georgia, uh, 50-something inches of rain a year. And, you know, depending on the time of year, six weeks, maybe eight weeks is more than enough recovery time. As a kid, I was a big fan of the Dukes of Hazard, and, and so I was very taken by your description of yourself as a good old boy. I'm just wondering if you could tell me why you think that more of the good old boys around you in Georgia don't follow your lead. Probably because they're, they're good businessmen. The uh, farmers who have survived, I should say that in my, in my part of the world here, farms have gone from being three, four, five hundred acre farms to being several, several thousand acre farms. So it was a survival of the fittest in terms of who is, what farming families have, have survived uh, through the last 50 years or so. Uh, the ones that are out there today are good business people. They didn't get there by accident. They didn't survive through accidental means. The commodity farming business has become uh, a very, uh, it's a very low return business, but it's also a much lower risk business. The the weather risk is mitigated somewhat by having bigger and bigger equipment that can be planted and harvested much more quickly. Uh, irrigation is uh, for droughts, uh, an arsenal of different pesticides to use in the event of some pest. Uh, the government programs that put floors under uh, price 
drops, the ability to uh, hedge on the commodity board, uh, federally subsidized crop insurance, and go on and on and on about different tools that have been provided through the economy or through science that takes risk out of production. But none of these people are doing super well financially because it's a low return, low risk business. But it's very, so the, but your question was, why are they not coming in this direction? The answer is, this is a very high risk business. There's a lot that can happen to go wrong in our business model. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not pleading with people to change the way they farm. I think it would be good if they did. But I, 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 because I am a good old boy, I get it. I understand. What do you think other farmers around you uh, think of you? I mean, obviously, within your business, the promotion that you do is, is to an extent, is sort of setting yourself above uh, in terms of farm animal welfare, carbon sequestration, environmental outcomes. Do they feel that the existence of your business is in some way, uh, you know, an insult to their own? Or do they just see you as a, as a businessman that's doing something different? Well, first of all, I will say this. You said setting myself above them. I don't set myself above them. I set myself apart from them. And there's a very, there's a very real difference in that. And because I don't set myself above, but set myself apart, I'd like to think there's not a tremendous amount of uh, animosity from the people who know me. Now, there is a tremendous amount of animosity on the part of big multinational food companies who really resent people like me, not just Will Harris, but the people like me who do lift up the negatives of that industrial monocultural commodity system. And, and and that I, that's a palpable thing. I feel it, and and you know it, 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 it it's concerning. For those farmers that you've described as, you know, excellent at what they do, uh, working in the conventional systems, who are businessmen, who don't want to take those risks, I wonder how, how you think farmers like that might be persuaded to, uh, to move in the direction that, uh, that you have. And there's, there's a new Secretary of Agriculture in Washington. And what would be your message to him? Well, let me ask what would bring about change. And I'll start out by telling you what will not bring about change. And then I'll tell you what will. Uh, what won't bring about change is government regulation because there are so many lobbyists with so much money representing the big multinational food companies that there will not be meaningful change from the government from Washington, D.C. It, what it, another thing it won't be is it won't be big multinational companies who make billions of dollars selling uh, highly processed food that comes from these monocultural industrial farms. The change won't come from them. Just like change didn't come from, from the tobacco companies when cigarettes were found to be carcinogenic. Uh, it won't come from farmers who just say, you know what, I think I'm going to just change what I do because it's the right thing, because they can't afford to. And I can go over two or three other things that, that people look to that will not cause change. If we have meaningful change, it will be because consumers educate themselves and demand it. You know, Wendell Berry, a uh, role model man, and he says uh, something like uh, con consumers vote with their dollars on how they want the world to be. And that's much easier said than done because these consumers are intentionally, hopelessly misled by big multinational food corporations by greenwashed product. Uh, let's don't change the way we produce food. Let's just change the way we talk about it. The food labels are so intentionally intentionally misleading that 
it's hard for consumers to educate themselves to make the difference that they have to make if we're going to do this. Fantastic. That's really interesting. It's, it's a great way to end, and that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank my guest, Will Harris, the man and the brain behind White Oak Pastures. You can find out more at whiteoakpastures.com. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.